Well, take your Bible this morning and find your place with me once more in the fourth chapter of 1 John. We've been making our way through this letter for the better part of six or seven months now. And you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, from the first six verses of the chapter, that the Apostle John calls upon his readers to possess a spiritually discerning Christianity. There in the first part of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. And what he's meaning by that is, uh, you know, the, the spirit behind certain truth claims. Don't believe every idea that masquerades as truth, but be discerning. Know the truth. And so for the first six verses of chapter 4, John deals with that particular subject. And in no uncertain terms, he says that what we believe is of monumental importance. Well, now as we come to verse 7, notice that John sort of switches gears here and says that how we behave is also of monumental importance. And again, what I believe, if I really believe it, it always affects the way that I live my life. And so really from verse 7 of this fourth chapter on through the remainder of the the epistle, uh, John is very practical, and he gives some practical application for his readers. And so he transitions from this subject of spiritual discernment to now in verse 7, he says that a spiritually discerning Christianity is also a genuinely compassionate Christianity. And that really is his emphasis all the way through verse 2 of chapter 5. Now, you can go through these next 18 verses, and you can count up the number of times that John uses this word love or loves, and he does so approximately 31 times in these 18 verses. And so he's dealing with this subject once again of love, divine love, the love of God, and what that means for my life and your life in terms of our relationships within the family of God. Now, if you ask someone to define what love is, uh, you'll discover that they'll have a hard time coming up with a sufficient answer. Uh, The dictionaries define love in terms of both a noun as well as a verb. As a noun, the Oxford English Dictionary defines love as an intense feeling of deep affection great interest and pleasure in something. As a verb, to love is to feel affection for someone or to enjoy something very much. If that's not a sufficient definition, think about this. Merriam-Webster defines love as a feeling of strong or constant affection for a person. So both of those dictionaries define love simply in terms of a feeling which means that our dictionary definitions for love come up way short and are not the full biblical definition that we're given in the pages of God's Word because love is a lot more than a feeling of affection, isn't it? Love is an action, an action that manifests itself. And if love is really nothing more than a feeling, then perhaps it can be lost And so you begin using the language of the world and the culture, talking about falling into love and falling out of love and that kind of thing. And love is no different than really the flu. It kind of comes upon you all of a sudden and then suddenly leaves, like it's beyond our control, 
kind of like being struck by a bolt of lightning or something like that. So the world understands love as an emotion, a feeling, and to a certain degree, an action. And while all of that is involved in this idea of love, the Bible tells us that love is much more than that. Love is an attribute of God. And that's something that John deals with in this particular passage. It's the very nature and character of the one in whose image that we have been made. Now, John has dealt a lot. He's dealt with this subject of love quite a bit throughout these chapters. And you'll remember that, you know, he's, he's dealt with this subject at least in chapter 2. He's dealt with it in chapter 3. And now he's coming back to this same subject in chapter 4 which if you remember way back from the beginning of our study, I told you that John, his writing style, it's not linear. He doesn't make a logical argument like Paul does in so many of his letters, but John writes with a cyclical writing style, a circular writing style, which means he'll introduce a subject, he'll move on to another subject, and then he'll come back to the subject that he had introduced. And so he does this over and over again And particularly, he does so along these themes of life, light, and love. God is light. That's something that he said in chapter 1. God is our life. That's something that he's emphasized throughout the letter. But God is love. And this is something that John says in this passage of Scripture that we're going to read here in just a moment. And so someone says, well, why is it that he keeps coming back to these same subjects? Uh, Why is it that he's dealing with these subjects in such a repetitious way? Well, bear in mind the fact that this is how we learn. How do you teach your kids important truth? You do so through repetition. Uh, I think there was a saying that was attributed to the Romans um, that repetition is the mother of all learning. There's something about repeating something over and over again not just to ourselves, but to our children. If we're trying to teach our children something, they learn through repetition. We learn through repetition. And so John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's writing in a way that reflects his personality, reflects his personality type, his writing style, but this is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So we keep coming back to this subject that is of great importance And it's the love that we have and the love that we manifest as believers. If there are a series of tests that we can lay down in our lives to discover whether or not we're truly in the faith, perhaps the ultimate test is this test that John presents us with here in this passage. Do I have love in my heart for my brother or my sister? Is the love of God something that I've come to possess personally in my life? Has God poured out his love in my heart and in my life so much so that it's expressed through my life uh, to others who are in my life? So notice what John says here in in verse 7. I'll read through verse 12. He says, beloved, let us love one another. So it's obvious here now that he's making this practical application. We need to love one another. Why? He says, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So I want to speak from this subject this morning, love so amazing, so divine. Now you may be familiar with that Lyric, it's it's taken directly from the 1707 hymn written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross upon which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. I surrender my pride. I pour contempt on all my pride. Well, the last stanza, Watts says this, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In other words, the hymn writer said, when I I truly take in the thought of the love of God and I consider the depth of the love of God that's displayed at Calvary's cross, this love so amazing, so divine, I recognize that it demands my everything. It demands my all. It controls the way that I live my life. It impacts the way that I relate to people in my life. And that's essentially the same thing that the Apostle John is telling us here in these verses of Scripture. Because you'll notice that he sort of sandwiches in between these two imperatives, uh, love one another. He says that in verse 7. He comes back to that in verses 11 and 12. In between these this, this command repeated twice, he takes us to the cross of Jesus. And so we're surveying the cross of Jesus. If you want to know what the love of God is and why the love of God is truly so amazing, John is saying you need to go to the cross because the love of God can only be understood in terms of the sacrifice of God's own son. So within this passage, I want to draw your attention to at least three things Uh, John wants us to know something about the majesty of God's love. And then he wants us to understand something about the measure of God's love. And then he wants us to consider the motive of God's love. And how this ultimately serves as motivation in my life and in your life uh, that leads us to love one another in the family of faith. So number one, notice the majesty of divine love. And this is what John Uh, draws our attention to in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So notice he refers to God five times there in just these two verses. And so he's talking about divine love, the love of God. He's repeating himself. He's coming back to this same subject that he's introduced earlier in the letter. But here, he's, he's tracing this fountain of, of, of love, this river of love, this stream of divine love, all the way to its ultimate source, 
which is God himself. And so multiple times throughout the letter, we've already seen him mention uh, uh, important truth concerning the love of God. Uh, Back in chapter two, he says that love serves as an evidence that we have fellowship with God. He says in 1 John 2, 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In chapter three, he says love is proof of our relationship with God, our sonship, the fact that we've been born into the family of God. In verse one of the third chapter, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Well, now he's taking us all the way to God himself, and he's saying that God, he's not just loving. Uh, God doesn't just simply love us, but John says here that God is love. That is, it's his nature. And so this is one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible on the love of God, an often referenced passage on the love of God. In fact, many of the more familiar references to the love of God come from the pen of the Apostle John. You ever considered the fact that John, he's referred to as the apostle of love simply because of his emphasis on divine love? It's John who tells us in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, It's John who writes of those intimate moments there in the upper room where Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In other words, as my followers, you're to love one another the way that I have loved you. What you've seen in me, this is how you are to love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. It's interesting that throughout the Gospel of John, nowhere does John refer to himself by name, but he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which tells me that John is someone who's absolutely overwhelmed by the fact that the Son of God would love someone like him. It's not a matter of pride for John to refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. No, he's overwhelmed by the thought that Jesus Christ loved a sinner like himself like him. By the way, that ought to overwhelm you when you think about it. What is it that will bring you to your knees in humility and repentance before God when you consider the fact that you're a sinner and yet God loved you? While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is something that should be overwhelming and shattering to my pride. And so a personal experience with the love of God changed John And it's also something that will change you and me as well. You think about questions and you think about the problems of our times. The fact that we're living in a dark and confused world and it seems like it's getting darker by the day. And we've got men and women and boys and girls of all ages who are despairing of life because of an apparent absence of love. Despairing of life. And and yet, we live in such narcissistic times also. Now think about the irony of that, where self-love rules the day. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, this was something that we could anticipate in the last days. Understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty. Second Timothy chapter three, he says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
proud, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So he's saying that as time progresses, as history moves toward its conclusion, as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, the world will become more unloving. Jesus said of the last days that the love of many will grow cold. Why? Because lawlessness will be increased. People will be loving all the wrong things. They don't love God. They don't love one another. They love themselves. They love pleasure. And so it's an important message then that John has to declare to the world this truth that God, he is light and he is love. Love is from God because God is love, according to what John says here. It's essential to his nature. One person says it this way, God is love, and everything we know about him teaches us that, and every encounter we have with him expresses that. God's love for us is deep and all-embracing, but it's not the warm-hearted sentimentality that often goes by the name of love today. (laughs) So let's be very clear that when John says that God is love, he is not saying love is God, because that's how the world tends to interpret this. This is how the world wants to think of love. Love is supreme. Love is God. No, love is not what you want it to be. Love is defined by God as revealed in his character. God is love. And if you want to know what that means, John says, I'm going to tell you. And he gives a full definition of it in the gospel which he summarizes there really in verses 9 and 10. So you think about this. D.A. Carson says that this really makes the task of Christian witness daunting because you ask anyone who believes in a God these days, and a majority of them will believe in a God who is a loving being. This is a widely held belief in the love of God, seen with increasing frequency in, in, in sets of ideas that are other than the Bible. When Bible-believing Christians talk about the love of God, Dr. Carson says we mean something very different than what's meant by the surrounding culture. So it's important that we have a biblical worldview when it comes to what, God, what love is and how God defines love. So again, notice John is not saying here that God is loving or that God loves. That's true. But rather he's saying God is love. That is, he's the one who gives it shape. He's perfect in love. He's the source of love. And this is why I'm I'm referring to this really as the majesty of divine love because this is not something that the world can know and understand. This is something that's only revealed in the light of who God is. And it's something that we're only able to see in the light of Jesus Christ. So when you look at the context of his statement there, God is love, you'll notice that it it really is a passage that involves how we are to relate within the family of faith. And this is how John's writing style is a little bit different than the Apostle Paul. I think if Paul were writing this, Paul probably would say, God is love. Now, here's... Here's some implications of that for your life. John kind of does it backwards. He says, here is the implication for your life. Why? Because God is love. So what are those implications? What's the result of this? If God is love, what is it that John is saying here? Verse 7, he gives us three reasons why we ought to love one another, because God is love. What are those three reasons? Well, 
Look at what he says there in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Here's reason number one. Love is from God. All right? He possesses it as property of his divine being, which means all genuine love proceeds from God. It's rooted in his character. And so if you follow his thought process here, John is saying that since it belongs to God as a divine attribute, and it's true of his nature, then this type of love should also be characteristic of those who possess his nature. This is why, this is why love then is the ultimate test of whether or not a person is in the faith. John's laid down the doctrinal test, and as important as that is, you know, a person can give verbal agreement and mental assent to a set of propositional truths and still be absolutely loveless in their life. You can be orthodox and still be stone cold dead. Are you, are you tracking with me? He said, what do you mean? Well, you can reduce Christianity to a bunch of boxes that you check. And I check all the right boxes. And I believe all the right things. Well, let me ask you this question. Has there been a change in your life? Has the life of God come to take up residence within you? Has the love of God been poured out in your life? Because that is the ultimate test of Christianity. Are you saying that it's not important what we believe? No, it is important. John's already established that. But here he's saying, listen, if God truly lives in you and you've come to know God, then love will be characteristic of your life as a believer. Not love in the sense as the world defines it, but the love of God. Agape. This is the word that's used here by John. This is the word that's used all through the New Testament. Agape love. Divine love, unconditional love. This was a non-existent word before the New Testament. It's almost as if the writers of the New Testament create a brand new Greek word to be able to describe this type of giving, selfless, unconditional love that is true of who God is. It's not a natural form of affection but it's a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about not natural affection here, but supernatural love. Something that is produced within you as a believer. It's a matter of the will more so than feeling because Christians are told to love even their enemies. The world can't understand love in terms of a, of a command. How, how can you command me to feel something? That's a deficient understanding of love. But you see, agape love is something that's different. We're commanded to love as believers because we've come to possess the love of God. This is something that, that has been poured out in you, the life of God in you, the fruit of the Spirit who lives within you. One of the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5 is indeed this agape love, this divine love, this love that does not come natural to us. You know, our experiences in life often reinforce this idea in our mind that we have to earn someone's love. You've got to meet certain standards. You've got to meet some criteria in order for others to love us. If I'm smart enough, if I'm attractive enough, if I'm good enough, if I'm appealing enough, then, then I've done something to win 
another person's affection. And yet, here's what happens. That kind of thinking really puts a burden on a person's shoulders that that, burden, that person can never really carry. It's a heavy burden that we were never meant to bear. It's a burden that leads to despair. There are a lot of people who've come to despair of life simply because they've been trying to earn the affection, the acceptance, the love of someone that they perhaps have never, have never received it. And this is why the gospel ought to be such welcome news in your life because the gospel says, why, while you were yet in your sins and in your trespasses, Christ died for you. God demonstrates his love for us in this way that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, the Son of God came into our mess. He came into our world he kept the law perfectly in his life, and yet he went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. And John is saying here in this passage, this is what the love of God looks like. <laughs> so he's saying, let us love one another. Why? Reason number one, love is from God. Reason number two, he says, whoever loves has been born of God. That is, this kind of selfless, sacrificial love will also be characteristic of your life if you've truly been born again. It's, again, it's, it's the life of God produced in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this is the testimony of every Christian. This is the testimony of every man, every woman who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, who testifies to the fact that there is a, there's a, there's a power now that's resident within their life resources that they can now draw upon when it comes to their relationships, resources that were not there before, but resources that are now there simply because the Holy Spirit, he's come to live within and produce this kind of love. That's why there's no excuse for an absence of love in our relationships with one another as the family of God. It's not in keeping with New Testament Christianity. I mean, how can we say we love God whom we've not seen if we don't love our brother and our sister whom we have seen. So reason one, love is from God. Reason two, whoever loves has been born of God. And look at reason three. Why should we love one another? Well, because it's evidence that you know God. And as your knowledge of God increases, I'm not talking about knowledge in terms of facts. You can get a perfect score on some quiz. No, this is experiential knowledge of relationship here. And the beauty of it is the more you know God and the better you know God in terms of a personal relationship with God, the more you'll reflect the love of God in your life. Isn't it amazing that the longer you walk with God, the, the more aware you are of your own sin and your own limitations? And that produces a sense of humility within you. And the more you mature in your faith, no longer do you look at everybody else as really being the source of your problems. You're no longer going through life pointing a finger of blame and accusation at everybody else, but you realize that your biggest enemy is yourself and your own sin. And the more you know God and the closer you, you grow in your relationship to God and the more he conforms you into the image of Jesus Christ, 
Listen, the more patient you become in your relationships with people, you're not going through life quick to point out blame and quick to point out splinters in everybody else's eye because you recognize, you recognize your own sin and your own need and the weight of God's mercy. This is the kind of thing that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? Perhaps the most well-known chapter on love, the love of God, agape love in the entire Bible. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I can be eloquent as a speaker. I can know all the right things, but, but, but if I have not love, I'm just a noisy, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So here, this is, this is Paul's way of laying down that love test that you can apply to your Christian experience. Now listen to this, here, here he defines love and he describes love, verse four of 1 Corinthians 13, he says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now listen to this. He brings this to a conclusion, verse 11. And listen to this maturing process that Paul says has happened in his own life. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What childish ways is he referring to here? Self, the self-life, selfishness, and self-centeredness. He's saying, the more that I came to know and understand about God, the less selfish of a man I became. And that's evidence of growth in my life. The less I went through life trying to blame the world and everybody in it for my problems, no, the more I knew of God and his love for me, the more humble of a person that I've become and God's grown me up. This is why I say, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So this is the majesty then of divine love. You get to verse 8 there in 1 John 4. John sort of says the same thing in a negative way, though. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
So that's the majesty of divine love. Now, notice the second thing, and the second thing is the measure of divine love. So he doesn't just leave this in the realm of, you know, the, the, the nondescriptive. He actually describes and defines what he's referring to here. He's not left the love of God up to our own imagination, but notice how it's brought into the realm of experience and history, and he says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, the love of God took on flesh. The love of God became visible. The love of God was made manifest that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So you want to know the measure of the love of God? Well, here it is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. These are some verses that make you feel like you need to take your shoes off your feet when you contemplate their truth because here you recognize that you're standing upon holy ground. Having said something about the majesty of divine love, he's now attempting to measure that divine love if you can imagine that. I mean, how can you measure something that's measureless? I mean, isn't that what the hymn writer wrote about? When he said, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. You, you know those lyrics. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. How can you measure that which is measureless? How can the finite even begin to describe that which is infinite? How can we plumb those depths? How can we scale those heights? How can we measure such lengths? Well, the Apostle John tells us, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 3. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. So if you want to measure divine love, think about what that means in terms of the depth. What's the depth of divine love? Well, listen to what John says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That is, this holy God of love gave his only son who was born into a world of brokenness and death and stuff like ours is. That God would manifest his love among us. You want to understand something about the depth of God's love? Take a trip to Bethlehem in your mind. Think about the Christmas story. And think about how the Son of God made his entrance into this dark world through the womb of a virgin and was rejected even in his infancy because the innkeeper had no room in the end for Joseph and Mary, imagine that, a loveless world like that, that a pregnant woman with child, she's forced to give birth to that child in a stable of all places. Isn't that just an, act, an adequate description of a loveless world? 
or how the ruler of the day, Herod, sends word to slaughter the infant Jesus and has all of the infant baby boys in Bethlehem under age two slaughtered. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like for the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to leave the heights of heaven above and be born into the depths of a world such as ours, a world reeling and rocking from the consequences of sin. If you want to measure the love of God, there it is, from its height to its depth, from the lofty heights of heaven above to the depths of a world awash with sin and death. Or if you want to measure the length and the breadth of the love of God, what about this? Look at the cross of Jesus. As the arms of our Savior are stretched out and nailed to a tree because of my sin and your sin and the world's sin, you want to measure the length and the breadth of the love of God? John says, here's how you do it. Look at the cross. A reminder of just the lengths that God himself went through out of his love for sinners like me and sinners like you. Listen, I'm glad I'm not left to my imagination to try to define what the love of God looks like. No, the gospel tells me what the love of God looks like. And here it is. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means atoning sacrifice. Now, I've got to stop here. But listen, is there any wonder why the hymn writer said, love so amazing and so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. If this is the measure of the love of God and the majesty of the love of God and the way in which God has so loved me as a sinner, then what might that motivation be in my life to love others in my life the way that God has so loved me? Because John doesn't leave us on the mountaintop of majesty. No, he brings us right back down onto the plane of everyday mundane experience in terms of our messy relationships with each other. And says, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. And we'll pick that up next week. Stand with me for prayer. Oh, if we want to know what love is, folks, we've got to come to Jesus. And he's the living embodiment of perfect love. The living embodiment of perfect love. In the application of this text, John is going to tell us that those who've experienced this love, I'm telling you, they're going to express it in their love with others, in their love or relationships with others. And that's not an easy thing, is it? because our relationships are messy. It's the stuff that life is made of. And someone says, you know, the world would just be an easy place if it weren't for the people in it. But you know something? It'd also be a lonely place if it weren't for the people in it. But, but here's the good news of the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is already giving you everything that you need to love people in your life not with a form of natural affection based on how people make you feel in any given moment. No, with a supernatural divine gift. This same love that's characteristic of our God, the God who is love, 
He's poured out this same love in your life as a believer. And this is the nature that you have come to partake in as a believer in Jesus Christ. Which is why you as a believer can be commanded and be told to rely upon the Holy Spirit who lives in you so that you can love others in your life the way that Christ has so selflessly and sacrificially loved you. Could you imagine how this would so change the dynamic of our church? And how this would so change the dynamic of what the world thinks about when the world looks at the church? This is what Jesus is saying when he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love in your heart for one another. My love, agape love, divine love. Would you bow with me this morning? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, listen. It's impossible for us to love in this way apart from knowing God. It really is. Which is why the key is coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sin, believing the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, may you take this truth and just so saturate our lives and our minds with it, Lord, as we, as we worship you, we think about the love of God, the depth, the height, the length, and the breadth, and how it's all measured right there for us, put on display for us in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Lord, may this be a real incentive in my life as a believer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.